Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new Exodus for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chronos Gaming, Classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. We have an awesome triple header for you this Modern Marvel Wednesday. We're going to be taking a look at the more mystical side of our coverage with Moon Knight number 11, and then the third issue of both Iron Fist and Strange. All three of these titles feature characters that have seen some significant transformation. Now, Two of them actually have different people in the lead roles, but this first title we're going to be looking at, Moon Knight, has really seen a transformation of the topics and the idea that goes into who Mark Spector and Moon Knight are. I have so greatly loved the Midnight Missions coverage of this title for the last 11 issues, as well as their coverage of the Black, White, and Blood Moon Knight special, and I look forward to their incredible coverage of the epic finale of this first year's run. But until then, check out this segment. And I hope you guys enjoy it just as much as we enjoyed making it. And don't forget, if you guys like what you hear, you might even like what you see. So feel free to give us a subscribe over on Twitter at X is for podcast. Hey, everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of X for podcast where we talk about all kinds of marvels. But right now we are focused on the midnight mission on Moon Knight 11. I'm Nathan. You can find me online at DazzlerOA on Twitter. That's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse. And that would make me Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Bento, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. And hi, everyone. It's Juancho. You can find me on Twitter at Lost in Krakow. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And we hope you survive this experience. Unlike the friendship between Mark and Tigra. Yes! So Moon Knight 11 is brought to us by the phenomenal Jed McKay as our writer, Alessandro Copio as our artist, Rochelle Rosenberg doing her amazing work as our color artist, Feces Corey Pettis as our letterer. We are on The Killing Time. This is part one of, I'm assuming, a two-parter to wrap up this first year's arc of Moon Knight. So, like, I gotta ask, going into this, like, did this meet your expectations as what we can only assume is the penultimate issue of this first year's arc honestly yes i was very pleasantly surprised with it and i love seeing that moon knight's cadre of trusted people or at least people that he can uh you know kind of depend on to help fight the good fight is slowly increasing with people that you wouldn't have normally thought of at first I liked it. I like how brutal it was. This is Moon Knight with no holds barred. I'm excited for to get into this and see what happens next. Yeah, I like that Moon Knight sets the tone really well at the beginning of this by saying, it's already been an ugly night. Let's make it uglier. And it just leads into violence and skullduggery throughout the rest of the issue. This is exactly what I am looking for in a Moon Knight comic. It's got some dark humor. It's got a lot of fucking action. And it's got Moon Knight actually being a competent character who knows a lot more than people give him credit for. The reveal of Tigra to him as having spying on him for the Avengers and his saying, yeah, I know. Like, that really struck me, you know, as 
something that Jed knows that Moon Knight actually has it going on. Like he knows what he's doing and he is a competent hero when everybody else thinks he's an incompetent hero. He is a realist. He's a pragmatist. So, you know, he understands that he's not just going to get free reign. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate that they don't, it doesn't escalate into like some kind of like dramatic confrontation between the two where they can no longer be friends and there's tears because that's something that we've seen over and over. And I prefer for Moon Knight to just say like, listen, I get it. I've done things that I'm not proud of. You've done things that you're not proud of. I forgive you. I know you're just here because you care about me. So let's just, let's get a move on. And I think this is a really, a really, really strong and healthy way to resolve this going forward for the two of them. I think that's really cool. It is interesting because it did seem to set up a conflict between the two of them. And then that conflict is pretty much moot here just by how they've learned to trust each other as a team over the course of these issues. Well, well, not only that, but I mean, they were lovers and they were friends for a long time on the Avengers. And I like this honestly shows how far Mark has come as a person, like character development wise, mental health wise. Greer knew she had to fess up. Like, you know, she's like, this isn't right. This just isn't right. I need to let him know, you know, what's what and put it all out on the line and let him do with it as he pleases. Because honestly, I've broken trust. And his response to that is, come on now, you know me better than this. How long were we together? And, you know, like I'm going out on my own and suddenly my best friend from the Avengers shows up and wants to like hang out and help me with what I do. I knew that you were here to keep an eye on me. And that's perfectly valid, especially after everything that happened like the fact that he's taking accountability for his actions and he recognizes why somebody might be nervous to just let him you know do free reign and have absolutely no like backup or or supervision of any sort like that shows a lot of growth and i love that and to support that i think i don't think that moon knight would have gotten there without the help of andrew Sturman and the rest of the midnight mission and that speaks to to i think what jet's been trying to say this whole time is that we need communities to help us grow and yeah. that's exactly what we've been seeing throughout this whole issue and throughout this whole series moon knight is much stronger because of the people that he trusts and who love him than he is as a lonely terrifying vigilante the way that zodiac wants to make him back into zodiac has had like zero success whatsoever in driving a wedge between Mark's humanity and the job that he does. And I think that we can see here that Moon Knight is very clearly on a winning ups, upswing here. This whole story is about somebody who is consumed by the guilt of what happened during the Age of Khonshu. And it's somebody who's trying to like reclaim his his humanity in some ways, you know, and really be able to grow as a person. And I love how it's showing that even as he's growing as a person, he can make mistakes or choices that fall into old patterns that he had, but still try to grow and learn from them at the same time. Yeah. And this, this issue more than any other, I think really emphasizes the amount that he's coming to depend on the people around him because like he has Tigra wear his vestments in order to trick Jigsaw early in this issue. He doesn't make this happen, obviously, but it happens anyway. A soldier steps up in the guise of Mr. Knight uh, as a way to defend Reese while Moon Knight is away. So twice in this issue have his friends taken on the mantle of the Fist of Khonshu, like in an illusory fashion, yes, but like as a way of saying like, we stand with Moon Knight, we're here to defend you. You don't have to do it all on your own. And I think that's so incredibly powerful. I think that's what makes Zodiac such an interesting character here or as a foil to Moon Knight because Zodiac represents the opposite side of that, right? Yes. Moon Knight's better off alone Moon Knight's better off with you know what he reminds me of Hunter Solomon 
Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing, actually. Zodiac really is the Hunter Sullivan to Moon Knight's Flash. That's yeah, really Hunter good. Sullivan's like mm-hmm. whole deal is that in order to make uh, Wally a better Flash, he needed to, you know, make uh, Wally's life living hell. And I think that's sort of what what Zodiac's trying to do here to Mark. Like in order to make to return Mark to like his mercenary ways, he needs to burn everything down, everything that's good in, in Moon Knight's life. And that's what makes him such an interesting foil. Like we have two these two opposite viewpoints, like in a tug of war for Mark's soul. Mark's pushing back. He can only do it with the help of his friends. And I think that's pretty cool. Also, I love that take because that makes me think about my take. And I was thinking of Zodiac as almost like a foil for comic readership. Like Zodiac has this one particular image of who Moon Knight is in his mind. And he is trying to push the character back to that, yes. which is something that is so prevalent in comic fandom. Like you, where you can never like let a character evolve, grow and change. That's an amazing take too. Yeah, I think absolutely both of those things are at play here. Like, personally, I know a, a guy who reads Moon Knight who would be more, much more excited if he went back to being, like, oh, crazy, ripping people's faces <laughs> off. Like, oh, this is so brutal. But, like, that's not who Mark is now. And Zodiac is definitely the comics reader saying, like, well, that's who you used to be. Like, why don't you go back to that now? That's an interesting push and pull. And the series really puts forward the idea that, like, no, this is, this is a Moon Knight who has done a lot of the work on himself and a lot of the healing. He's still got a ways to go. And he does make an unfortunate regression in this very issue but like he's on a path to better in one of the now classic illustrations by Capuccio with Rosenberg's colors when Moon Knight enters his meditation space and calls upon Kanchu, but he calls him father he's like just desperate for Kanchu to come and Kanchu, of course knows he's desperate so he waits until Moon Knight does the thing that he doesn't want to do which is again put himself in this position with Kanchu as subordinate to him and like you know open to manipulation by him and of course as Kanchu said says there will still be a price he might as well have just said daddy <laughs> what the fuck? yeah it, it is a, it is a breaking down and i think Kanchu did this on purpose like waiting oh, yeah. here for him to answer until he used the right tone of phrase and the the right words to to say like all right i yield to you i'm going to put myself in your power again what, what will it take for me to get your help this is something that happens constantly with mark as he's put in a position where he is dependent on Kanchu to bail him out and Kanchu loves to take advantage of that and i can only imagine what kind of price is going to come out of what seems to be opening a path through the overview again very exciting to see that happen again Kanchu loves making marks up Kanchu is like that abusive relationship you cannot get away from because you are like dependent on that person for something whether it is like financial or you know a place to be like you know like oh my god just it's such the abusive relationship I think that's intentional because we're watching Mark work his way through abusive relationships and how to have proper coping mechanisms to them so yeah it's it's oh Oh my god, it's so much to take in, but it is so well done. I really like the panel work in, in that page where Conscious says, my son. Because mm-hmm. in previous issues, we've seen Mark as this huge, towering, almost Lovecraftian figure. And now we see him reduced to, to what he makes other people feel, right? Like they're small, right. like they're weak, like they're powerless. And in a way, that's how Mark sees himself when, when he's against Conscious. Yeah, and Conscious is like emotionally manipulating him here, not just by placing him into this subordinate role, but 
what like with his whole I'm in prison mark in shining Asgard by your hand this is your fault and when he brings up Hunter's Moon he says ah yes my loyal son my loyal fist you know the one who's better than me like many an abusive father he never misses an opportunity to remind Mark that he's disappointed with him oh my god but I also think that this speaks to uh, Mark's growth in that he's willing to pay this sacrifice to this price like to be abused by country again in order to save his friends well it's not like he really has a choice but he is making the choice to save his friend he could refuse to pay this price to not mm. go back into it but he's he's doing it because there's other people now that it matters to yeah yeah, yeah. we can segue from these deep heavy like conversations to some pretty well-placed humor throughout the book like i love how when zodiac's out there he's like I better just shake my fist in the air and chagrin. Curse you, Moon Knight. I'll get you next time. That is hysterical. And like, I think one of my new favorite panels of dialogue at all is when Tigra's like, hey, Winter, you got like a jetpack or something, right? And he's like, I am an escaped mental patient, Maddo. <laughs> I've come down somewhat from my super terrorist days. <laughs> oh my God. That was so good. I almost died laughing. Like that there, was funny. There's a lot of funny lines in here and there's a lot of like personal jabs it's great that not only has everybody grown closer but they're all very close with zodiac because for a long time they thought he was one of them so yeah. they like know him pretty well so for reese to come out and be like here i am terry like <laughs> oh, throwing oh. that fake bullshit name in his face like hey terry i'm not gonna call you zodiac i'm not gonna use your stupid super name <laughs> right and just just the way she said it you know that there was like flavor on that mm, yeah like <laughs> You just, you just called him the most little bitch name ever <laughs> compared to Zodiac. Yeah, I think that works with Zodiac's like uh, terrified face, like right next mm-hmm, to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his what? No, no way! I love seeing Zodiac be surprised because he's somebody who's constantly like thinks he's in control, which is so at odds with his whole like nobody should be in control, everybody should be free, anarchy except for it's actually chaos. he's literally like a caricature that like mainstream republicans democrats and often other leftists look at anarchists and are like it's just a guy with a mustache holding a bomb going chaos (laughs) (laughs) this guy is like flag smasher but actually interesting in a lot of ways right like oh my goodness (laughs) also i love reese in this issue because we get to see like bits and pieces of her and she is like she's a teenager she's young but like she really steps up with that calm boldness that really only usually black and brown children learn and she's like no i gotta do this because i can't sit here and be safe in the mission while all of our neighbors are going to be slaughtered yes yeah that is so important to point out that not only is this about defending mark's friends and mark's mission and mark it's about protecting the neighborhood that the midnight mission is there for you know the people who travel at night in this specific locale of New York. <laughs> like these are not only under Mark's protection, but they're their community. Like Ter- yeah. Terry, allegedly, Soldier and Reese are all from this local community. I mean, like mm-hmm. this is this is it's been a hyper local setting and it matters more and more now that like they're not doing this to protect each and every one of their team. They're doing this to protect the random people sleeping next door who are now suddenly at risk by this super terrorist. Like she knows going outside's not gonna do anything 
to really help. Like she knows that there's no way she can win. Like she knows it's a trap. Like, and she knows that even if she tries and goes out, he'll still probably kill the rest of the neighborhood, but she can't not do nothing about it because she just has that much strength of character. We haven't really talked enough yet about the art in this issue, which is phenomenal. I mean, like what a game. The more and more Moon Knight I read, the more and more I appreciate what a talented uh, inker we have, but also Rochelle Rosenberg as a color artist is like, wow, like the very last page where a soldier is dressed as Mr. Knight and says Zodiac, nice night has easily the most beautiful colors Rochelle Rosenberg has thrown into Moon Knight for me at all. Like Capuccio's art is reminiscent here of like Declan Shalvey's uh, take on Moon Knight. It's got that extremely striking bare white with the deeply black shadows and lines. But Rochelle Rosenberg's like coloring on that page is astonishing in a way that I often associate with like modern X books. It is so gorgeous. It is layered, it is shiny, and the colors just on that page make me excited for this final showdown. It seems like a conflagration about to happen. When you look at even just the lettering in this book, a lot of it in this issue is a little bit more understated than it has been maybe in the past, but where it's used when he's calling Kanchu and there's like the red bubble around the Kanchu and just like the use with obviously with Kanchu's way of speaking, the different styles of lettering there, like it's understated, but it's just so spot on that it's amazing. Right after he goes into the meditative state, which by the way, was gorgeous, where Kanchu shows up, my son, that page is phenomenal in every single sense of the word like the colors the lines the the everything even just that little word bubble is just so poignant i would have to say that is probably my favorite panel of the whole issue as well just overall yeah it's there's just no words i mean we've been uh like throwing heaps upon heaps of phrase upon this art team Mm-hmm. and it's it's incredible how they just get better and better and better mm-hmm. like this is an all-timer for me in terms of art because it's just so consistently good and inconsistently improving which is like insane yeah like, it has been getting better agreed yeah mm-hmm. and like this page here which raven was referencing with, with the towering control remark like you can even tell that we're in a different sort of space because the art is more like scratchy i don't yeah, know if you can if, if you know what i mean it's not scratchy yeah. in a bad sense like you can see more lines yeah. yeah. And like that just immediately tells you we're somewhere else. And if you go to the page where the portals open, you can see that same style. Yeah, no yes. it has what I would describe sort of as like a Andrea Sorrentino vibe, you know, like where Andrea Sorrentino has like all those like million tiny lines that kind of form together to form like a very photorealistic picture. But at the same time, you can tell it's all just like scratching inks and hinting at things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like in Gideon Falls, sort of. Yes, exactly yeah. what I was thinking of. <laughs> I think nothing speaks to the stark difference here between the incredible colors and the Moon Knight show than, I don't know if you have a physical copy, but I picked up a physical mm-hmm. copy of this issue, and the very first opening page inside the cover is a yes for Moon Knight, the show, <laughs> and it's like drab, dull, gray, washed out, off-white thing I can imagine. Like, nothing, nothing really points out the stark difference between reading the comic and watching the show than seeing the absolute lack of any kind of joy 
enjoy your color in that ad. I know, right? Which is which is so funny because when you get into the show, the show often feels very, very much like the comic book. But yeah, it is a very different feel on how they encapsulate Mark as a character versus how they do Mark in the comic book. And I love the difference. They did it so well. When Soldier is dressed as Mr. Knight, they actually do draw him differently than you would draw Mr. Knight. You can tell it's somebody else in the suit. It's amazing. The suit does not fit the same way. The shoulders are much broader mm-hmm. on Moon Knight and like Soldier is clearly a very lanky and thin person. I agree. Mm-hmm. I think that's really cool. Just the fact that they put that thought into this to obviously make him a different person mm-hmm. in look and appearance is oh, amazing. Remember that issue where which was focused on the on Dr. Vader as Hunter's Moon? We can immediately tell here who's wearing what. I agree. Terms of clothes, and I think this art team has done a great job in reflecting how clothes wear off people, right? Like we're not yeah. all perfectly straight. Clothes have wrinkles. They bend. They fold. And I think like you see that panel where Reese is confronting Soldier, and he comes up with the idea. Mm-hmm. Like look at those the sleeves of their of their clothes, and you can see they're wrinkled because they're they've been like you can tell where where soldiers grabbing you can see it in the next panel mm-hmm. now that's more wrinkly than than the other like in the past i think that's incredible like those tiny details that these wonderful artists are making me notice i mean that's what i said is this run in terms of art is incredible and moon has been blessed by beautiful artists People talk all the time about this as Jed McKay's Moon Knight, and it is, and Jed is one of the powerhouse strengths of the book. It, he's, his writing has been transformative for the character, and it has led to one of, if not my all-time favorite run of Moon Knight so far, 12 issues, 11 issues in. But I don't hear enough people giving praise for the art of this, and I know we do it every week, but I think... Really, Capuccio and Rosenberg together as a solid team on this are astonishing, and the book would not be nearly as good without them. I don't even think I can recognize this as Jeb McKay's Moon Knight, because it's not Jeb McKay's Moon Knight. It's McKay, Capuccio, Rosenberg. You have to name the team, because honestly, the team of McKay, Capuccio, Rosenberg, and Pettit are making this the book that it is, and without one of them, I don't think you would have the same story that's true of all comics and going forward i'd like to try to focus a little bit more on the gestalt entity of the creators of comics because they Mm -hmm. all have something that plays in we said it before and raven you just said it now but this book is more true of that than i think other comic books often are like yes the art is always important but there some artists are so talented at sequential art that they become more of the storyteller than Mm -hmm. the scripter or the plotter and i think javier rodriguez is a great example of that and i think that capuccio and rosen each deserve recognition for that skill as well here there's a lot of books you can either say wow the art team on the t- that book is really amazing but you know like i don't always love the writing or you're like man I, that writing is really sharp but i don't love what they're doing with the art as much but this is like one of those teams that both sides are, are holding up the standard so high that they're like almost equal at all times i don't want to leave Corey pettit out here either yeah. although i haven't gotten a good baseball clunk in a while <laughs> <laughs> not that i'm gonna hold that against them but some of these like really gory like bloody woods as moon knight is beating up jigsaw are like particularly visceral and i have appreciated his lettering style throughout this entire comic and also the word choices 
So we have one more issue before the big finale of this first year's arc. How do we see this showdown between Moon Knight and the Zodiac crew going down? I just can't wait for Moon Knight to find another way than to punch him out. Like, because that would be giving him what he wants. That would give the Zodiac what he wants to like carve the moon at him. I want Moon Knight to find another way to take him down. I want Moon Knight to grab his ass and throw him into that fucking tunnel and let him fight his ass the fuck out of that mystery realm that way he gets a taste of nah this isn't just me punching people this isn't just me being a batman with a money flow problem this is some deep mystical shit as well so yeah i would like for moon knight to grab a hold of that stupid padlock chain on zodiac at the end and go listen sid vicious let me tell you about what principled anarchy is (laughs) you completely have no idea about this political system and you're just a whiny kid looking for an excuse to act out don't call yourself an anarchist (laughs) to your friends of kropot <laughs> I mean, this is superhero comics, and I know that like a, at least a big part of, of how Moon Knight's going to win, it's going to be like because he punches Zodiac out. This is superhero comics. We, we can expect that. I hope, we, like you said, we have some clever ideas here. But for me, the most interesting part of the following issue, and perhaps going forward now that we know we're getting more issues, is exactly what price Conchie puts on, on his help. Yep. And not just what price Mark will pay, but what price will the Moon Knight mission pay, with a Midnight mission pay? Because mm-hmm. I don't think yeah. we're getting completely unscathed. Big thing I wonder about is how Midnight Mission is going to fare out of this. It's Tigra and like uh, Dr. Sherman, brother for winner, like what's going to be their deal after this? Because I don't think everyone's going to come out okay. It would be an interesting story if they all come out okay. Yeah. I'm pretty worried about soldiers' odds here, holding them off while they travel through a mystical dimension because I'm looking forward to in the next issue getting at least a good deal of that being the travel there because I always love when they're in the overvoid or the other void or wherever they happen to be at the time. Mm -hmm. I have negative feelings about how this act at heroism by soldier is gonna go especially as he's like a reformed ex-hydra guy so i mean this might be one of those redemption by death stories for him oh no yeah i have a feeling that it maybe not death but like he's gonna be severely injured it's gonna cost somebody a lot tiger's gotta survive this because she's in defenders coming up so we know she's safe right yeah but then Mm -hmm. like uh, other than that who else could get in trouble they better leave reese alone (laughs) oh my god i will riot i'm not ready to let go of dr botter as a character and i don't think that they're ready to let go of dr botter so i assume he'll be okay but it's impossible to forget that he is like currently chained up by zodiac's goons and in a position of helplessness i would love to see how they overcame him because he's like a total badass yeah like i'm like did these clowns really (laughs) take down dr botter on his own well i mean there's about two dozen of them and they did lose three people you said he killed three people before they were able to even begin to get a handle on him right it was the other three members of the sex pistols (laughs) (laughs) are there any final thoughts that anybody has on this issue anything you want to throw out there in the universe on this moon Knight run as we're going into this last issue of the first year's arc do you think that marks i need a friend tiger means more than what he's letting on no i think romantically oh yeah no i don't think so no i like honestly there there are no hints there are no clues but i do think that it is showing that friendship like an actual friendship is very important to mark and what 
what Mark and Tigra have is a genuine friendship. Not all friendships are going to go perfectly smoothly. Um, not all relationships go perfectly smoothly. There are always going to be, you know, bumps and weirdness along the way, but they're overcoming it. And it's, oh, I'm here for it. I think for another superhero or another character, I Need a Friend might be subtextually like sexual or romantic, but Mark literally needs a friend. He doesn't have one, you know, like yeah. he really does not have any friends. He's only just recently begun to consider the Midnight Mission his like acolytes or his team, but he still doesn't really like let them get close. So when he says I need a friend, I think he means that in the most literal yeah. possible sense. Mm -hmm. I think it'd be very interesting if in the following issues we we get to see Marlene back uh, along with Mark's daughter, but who knows? I would love to see the return of that story because like what's going on with that? But <laughs> but I understand that after the Bemis run, maybe they're uh, taking some time off to rest and recuperate. <laughs> well, it's been years now. I mean, it has been. It has been maybe like three years now. There's a lot to hope for in this final issue and what's coming ahead. I cannot explain how odd it is for me that one of my favorite books coming out every month for Marvel is Moon Knight. Okay, like totally not a character I thought I would love and resonate with the story so much on. I thought, hey, cool, I'll just pick up the series at first and it'll be a fun way to learn a little bit about Moon Knight. But oh my God, I fell in love. Yeah, this series is absolutely why I ended up reading through all of the Bemis and the Lemire and the Bun and the Declan Shelby run, Brian Wood run even, which, you know, it's a man with allegations against him and that should be taken seriously, but I forget who the artist was on that off the top of my head. I even went back and started reading uh, all of Moon Knight's pre-Moon Knight comics and you know what? They're all pretty good. I gotta say, like, this is a comic that always has good art and this is a comic that always has interesting writing, but this is some of the strongest it's ever been on both fronts. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yep. And, and thank God that, that Jed doesn't go back into uh, Moon Knight's original origin <laughs> idea <laughs> where he was just bit by a werewolf by night, even though he was never bit. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we make, we, we, that never happened. That <laughs> never happened. La, 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 la. <laughs> well, he literally did not get bitten by a Moon Knight, but later writers were like, I guess he did, though. <laughs> but maybe he didn't. You're like, what in the mandala effect is this shit? <laughs> it's fun. I highly recommend our listeners to go back and read all the yeah. uh, pre-Moon Knight comics. You can find them on Marvel Unlimited. They appear first in Werewolf by Night, and then there are some later appearances in Hulk, Spider-Man, and other comics. Uh, they are a hoot. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think we can avoid the, uh, the Bendish run. That's mm. <laughs> I am not personally fond of that run. I tried starting that and did not finish it, but, you know, teach their own. But you definitely highly suggest if you have Marvel Unlimited, go on Marvel Unlimited. Just look up the character Moon Knight, read those first few issues to see what early Moon Knight was, which is its own magical and unique thing that is not always very sensitive in its writing yep. styles. I go back to what you said, Steve, about putting this in the top of your like Moon Knight runs. It's going to be very hard because for me, I mean, at least the Lemire run, the Lemire and Smallwood run was not just a great Moon Knight comic when it was coming out, but for me, it was the best comic coming out. Yeah, I would like, agree. Is my favorite. Because like, I read that as it was coming out right and that was my favorite book and as for the Shelby run I mean that's like your first X-Men run like that's the one you you always go back to because it's the first one you read mm -hmm. and that's the first mm -hmm. one you, you, you read to get into the character mm -hmm. but I mean this run is just it's up there it, it really is and I hope uh, it sticks the landing next issue and whatever comes forward better be yeah. a Wheaties box <laughs> I think we've got a lot of really good stuff to look forward yeah. to coming up with midnight yeah Agreed. absolutely 
Hey, everybody. So Alyssa Wong's Iron Fist has been an absolute revelation. I so love Lin Lei. And seeing this new era for a new Iron Fist has been one of the most exciting things. I've been a fan of the character, but there's always been that nagging sense of cultural appropriation that really reduces the efficacy of the storytelling, no matter how beautiful the storytelling is. So getting an opportunity to sort of no holds barred love an Iron Fist title and to fall in love with this new character. It's led me to checking out Swordmaster and really being fascinated by the ways in which Marvel attempted to create new myths and then incorporate them into the existing Marvel Universe. The continued success of Iron Fist in this new miniseries is just proof that there is room for this storytelling and we hope you guys enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to Access for Podcast. I'm Nico and you guys can find me traversing Kunlun over on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I'm Tori. You can find me over on Twitter at Tori underscore Sheehan and on Instagram at SM Tori. That's Tori with an I. I'm probably shoving shards under my skin to do better in life. Oh, dear. And I'm Steven. You can find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star. And I'm TK. You can find me monologuing about the demon that empowered me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And I am not Jonah. I have actually a demon that replaced him months ago and nobody seemed to notice, but you can still follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at peakjonah, and that's P-E-A-K, and we hope you survive this experience, just like this encounter with these immortal weapons, question mark? I can't believe you didn't go with unlike Min Min's dad. Can someone tell me what an immortal weapon is? Because I'm barely figuring out what an immortal iron fist is. So one of the things that we have created is an opportunity for people to interact with media by iconographic self-reflective imagery right so like it's why everybody wants a harry potter house but you know fuck that turf everybody wants to be a member of a specific mutant team or like you've got your favorite superhero team maybe you're a member of the bat family yes yes astrology signs yes yes exactly i'm very much a lantern person right like i love the green lantern i love the lantern core but one of the things that's really specific for me is that I am a Green Lantern purist because for me, the most important thing about being a Green Lantern is that you specifically believe in the idea of bravery above all else to save everyone so that if they're not feeling brave, you're brave for them. And that's like, that's the whole Lantern core identity. Mm -hmm. But that's not everybody. And there's people who believe there are other keys to being the best you you can be. And in that regard, there is a color Lantern core and they are spectacular and most people have their personal favorite, right? What it caused was a ripple effect by which everything became core Propertyable, and the idea was to take everything that you could and to iconographically brand it, which is why we got the seven immortal weapons, which are many parts and in many ways based on existing canon, but was all sort of pieced together in a clean way. The immortal weapons are a group of champions from the seven capital cities of heaven who are skilled in martial arts and know how to control their chi and 
and they are each the avatar of that mystic land. And the seven capital cities each converge once every 88 years for a mystic tournament. And at the start of the Immortal Iron Fist, which is considered sort of the seminal run that created the modern iconography of Danny Rand as a force in the Marvel Universe, we had Iron Fist, who was the living weapon of Kunlun, Bride of Nine Spiders. She is from the Kingdom of Spiders. Tiger's Beautiful Daughter. She's from Tiger Island. Fat Cobra, who is a giant sexy sumo wrestler, and I Hello. love him so much. He is from Panglai Island. We have Dog Brother number one. He is amazing, and he is the hero to all strays on the streets of the world, and he is from Undercity. And then there's Prince of Orphans. Prince of Orphans is named John Amon. John Amon is interesting because that's actually a public domain character, and John Amon exists at multiple publishing houses. And then, of course, there's Davos the Steel Serpent, the Crane. What a dumbass. Can't stand him. Yeah, that was 45 minutes, but that's the Immortal Weapons. They are what if the Lantern Corps were Power Rangers at Marvel. So we are here to talk about Iron Fist number three, written by Alyssa Wong with incredible art by Michael Yeag and Sean Chen. We have four separate anchors. We have Michael Yeag, Victor Olabaza, Keith Champagne, and Don Ho. The colorist is J. David Ramos, and VCs Travis Lanham does beautiful work on the letters. The cover standard is by Lionel Francis Yu and Sonny Go, and the variant cover is by Jim Chang. And I just want to go out of my way to mention all of those incredible AAPI creators because this book is really about reclaiming an idea that had been appropriated. So it's just so important to see AAPI Heritage creating this title now. One of the things that makes this run really interesting is the ways in which it's challenging the notions of the Iron Fist in the Marvel Universe, and it's asking us to really reconsider the position of Iron Fist. One of the things that we had seen for many years was the effort to insert Iron Fist into the sort of Marvel street-level characters, and now instead, something that TK and I have experienced through our continued coverage of everything Electra ever is that Danny Rand is currently playing second fiddle to Mayor Luke Cage. And as his body man, Danny Rand is the most interesting he's ever been. And yet that means Danny Rand is still squarely a part of the street level world while the Iron Fist has been removed and is now part of a very clearly separate magical sphere. I wanted to get your guys' response to the idea that the Iron Fist, which is culturally associated with the Marvel Netflix, Netflix sort of universe here is taking on a much more high mystical form for an all new run. So for me, who needs to catch up on a lot of things, I really enjoy it. I also enjoy how they keep bringing up Shang-Chi because to me, that's great to see that we're getting hints and hints and hints. And I feel like he's probably going to stop by at some point, which would be awesome. I really like that this Iron Fist is giving us more of that mystical because to me, the idea of Iron Fist having such mystical powers that seem to me like they are very high powered for someone who is running around at a street level. I really like the fact that we are getting this more mystical. We're going to the other world primarily. We're getting a lot more demons. We're getting a lot more shards of pain. And while I am also dying for more Danny Rand trying to figure out who this new kid on the block is, I'm really, really enjoying this new world, new cast of characters, all of these people who are admittedly still pissed that even though the Iron Fist is now of Asian heritage, that he's still not 
one of them. For me, I am thinking about this holistically starting with the death of Doctor Strange, White Fox tie-in that introduced us to this idea of Swordmaster having a great big fall and that being the thing that kicks this all off. And really seeing Alyssa Wong take ownership of a bunch of ideas associated with this corner of the Marvel Universe and pulling things together, associating characters with ideas that she has and making this cohesive whole that, yeah, is really divorced from Danny Rand, which is important because this is a you know an act of reclamation. I do love that Devil's Reign found something great to do with Danny. I would love to see him continue on as some kind of active personality in Hell's Kitchen corner of the Marvel Universe, but I am really into this idea that there's this bigger cosmology and mythos around the sword, around the Iron Fist, around people like White Fox, and these things are all interacting. Even Shang-Chi is in the mix too, because that's another character that Alyssa has touched, but she's pulling together all of these characters and identities that are, you know, primarily Asian and have to do with Asian mythologies, and giving them a chance to expand and shine on their own, and in a way that is really not tied to problematic characters. I am loving the new discoveries that we're making about this world as we go, and I'm just excited for each next step and each revelation. Initially, before I read the third issue, I was getting a little concerned because I didn't know if there was going to be enough time to give this story the justice it deserves, because I was really enjoying this run of Iron Fist, and this is the first Iron Fist I've ever read. Uh, That's actually a lie. I did read Iron Fist number 15. Is that the one where the X-Men come home to try to surprise Gene, and then Danny's there because it's Missy Knight's apartment, and he's like, hey, you guys aren't supposed to be here, and then he throws a a thing of, like, dip in Storm's face. the pie. Shortly after Sabretooth first appears in Iron Fist, the next issue, Iron Fist comes home, and uh, Storm gets a pie in the face. And then Misty and Jean come home and they're like, what the hell are you guys doing? They're like, wait, you were all good guys? Ah Oh, so funny. Mischief. I am now with a new Iron Fist. And we have this character that I first met in Death of Doctor Strange White Fox, which was one of my favorite side issues to come out of that event. But it was this beautiful bond we saw between these two characters that I thought had great chemistry. And then we see Lin Lin fall. We're now introduced to him again as the Iron Fist, as the host of this power, having to reacclimate with his identity. I was nervous about this book not having enough time. But this issue just made me so excited and so much more hyped for the future that will come, not only for these characters, but the future issues we will get for this story. I was impressed with the kinds of storytelling and the themes that were being introduced for this character that I think just makes so much sense for the character of Iron Fist. And I am really happy to see this become a legacy title now that could be passed on to new characters. And I do think that Lin Lin is a great new host to introduce Iron Fist to a new generation of readers, but to also have Danny appear and still help around with the role. I am more excited to see these two old and new Iron Fist interact with one another and what that means for that title. When you do see this many inkers on a book, you know, I know that inking is for many people kind of a misunderstood art. And it's funny because, you know, 
know you never notice good inking, but man, will you never be able to say what it is about bad inking that makes the book wrong. It'll just make the book look wrong. In that, I get very concerned when I see four inkers on a title doing two pencilers. It's a real opportunity to create an unfortunate amount of chaos that could disturb the quality of appreciating the book. But something that I noticed here was that there was a subtle transition across most of the changes that I felt supported the chaos of the narrative. I didn't notice it, I don't think. So I think that it obviously went quite smoothly. I think I'm there with Tori. I don't I don't think it registered to me, actually, which I think says a lot. I definitely noticed there were just a few stylistic changes, like broadly. Like one of the big ones that really stood out to me is when they teleport away. Iron Fist like goes through the doorway. The artwork changes pretty drastically there. Like the way Lin Feng is drawn in the first few pages is pretty different than in the middle of the issue. That said, I do think that it feels cohesive. There are absolutely ways to pull off having multiple artists and ones with styles that are so distinct that you can't even like fake it and just try and say like, we kind of mashed it up and, and created a broad, like common style just for this issue while we had all these people. It's something that X-Men fans I think see a lot. There are a lot of X-Men issues that have way, way, way too many artists on them and the art is really disjointed and you just get confused about who is who. In this case, everybody is totally distinct. The art styles aren't so drastically different that it feels like I'm reading something else now. You do see some slight changes, but there's also a lot going on in the book and there's a lot of movement, a lot of action, a lot of destruction. And in moments like that, you kind of are at an advantage because each panel is a shakeup of what you're looking at and you're not necessarily drawn to well I was just looking at this character and they looked exactly like that and now we're two panels later and they look totally different because you can kind of buy like they're probably a little bit disheveled so of course they're going to look different and you know whether it be luck or a lot of effort and planning it really worked out for them in this issue none of the styles are bad nothing looks rushed nothing is lacking in details that you need they're just some different styles throughout the book it's something I think I maybe subconsciously noticed but your brain will kind of just fill in details for you and it'll just kind of make things as homogenous and easy for you to understand as possible. So I think on a subconscious level, I understood that maybe the art wasn't one for one, like everything looks exactly as it's supposed to. But in the same vein, my brain kind of just melded everything together to be like, no, 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 it looks right. Shh keep reading keep reading you're enjoying this <laughs> to just add to a quick point that you were talking about tk of how you can have two artists with two distinct different styles the jane foster valkyrie miniseries with her and runa where the two different stories had two different art styles but it worked beautifully together to tell this really amazing beautiful story that's an excellent excellent perspective now i've really wondered about the nature of pain as power which is something i don't care for in a pretty big way. But when we think about characters who define themselves by pain, a character whose name I certainly identify with, Nico Minoru, Sister Grimm of the Runaways, has long used pain to summon her power. Now they have, of course, adjusted that and stopped sort of dignifying cutting as a superpower, which is not okay. There's something about the presentation of it here where Alyssa Wong might flirt with the idea of pain as a representation of power source, but because of 
the nature of its treatment that it's within the course of emotional healing, I think she's managed to create a powerful dichotomy between pain and growth through breaking through emotional barriers, which can be painful. That makes me not concerned about the implications. And I would love to get everybody else's perspective on how you guys feel about that very precarious balance. I think because I thought we would move away from the sword shards a little faster, like we'd already be seeing a solution towards the end of even the first issue, even if we hadn't gotten to it yet. They're really in there. And then he added more. What I noticed this issue was that it's taking on an element of body horror. This is not a good thing. This is not a sustainable solution. Lin Lie is in Kunlun to heal and to try and fix this situation and maybe come to terms with whatever is going on with the Iron Fist power. But this is not a new long-term status quo. And so even though we do have the moment where he doubles down in this issue and jams more short sword shards into him, it does feel like this is not a good choice. This is not something that anybody should be doing. This is something that's going to have massive repercussions. And this is not how we will see the character two years down the line, five years down the line. This is an accident that happened that produced certain results that are resulting in this story. And, you know, he now kind of had to choose from two really bad options to try and fix the situation. But yeah, I do agree that this is not a glorification of pain. Any boost that this gives the character in the moment in terms of powers is really going to be outweighed by the fact that this is painful, it's hurting him, it's not sustainable, and it requires a lot of healing work to do. And that, I think, really is going to be the bigger focus. And I think it has been throughout the story so far. I agree with that. It's definitely not by shoving more shards into my arms, I get to have even more power. I don't know if I thought that we would have a resolution to the shards early. I actually think that at this point, if they're not picking them out of him, he's kind of stuck with them for probably a really long time until he gathers all the shards and then the sword like shoves itself out of his body. What I felt like it resonated with is this idea of the shards have to be part of what his training is. The idea that, you know, Sparrow lost her eyes and had to reorient themselves. That if the chi can't flow properly through him with these shards, that we're going to have to figure out other ways to do this. It's less elevating self-harm as a way to make pain the power and more, like you were saying, it's taking a shitty situation, it's swallowing the nuclear bomb and hoping it doesn't go off. It was a well-done idea where I looked at it and I thought to myself, oh, this is similar to self-harm. But then I was like, but it's very, very different. It's not saying that this is the way to power, this is the way to get ahead. This is a very poor decision that is probably only going to come back and bite him in the butt at some point. I would also like to bite this iron fist on the butt if that is something that we can just sign up for. Somebody I think not cute, iron fists super irritating brother you gotta go Lin Fang I am not here for you I don't know 
I got what? a Diglin thing. What? I'm no, sorry. I thought, awesome. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought we were building up to his shitty little bully at the at the thing. You're you're against the hot evil brother? I'm oh. here for him, but he's gotta go. I kind of Diglin thing too. I think they are awesome. And I look forward to them hopefully one day becoming besties again. But I also really like the bully too, because I think he's gonna be Cordelia in the end. He's gonna come around to team Iron Fist and he's gonna be, you know, just a regular part of the gang. Oh, please. He's already pulling base pigtails. Like, I can see this coming a mile away. I love it because I don't know where it is going in a way that because it's Alyssa Wong, I'm excited. I could really see this being a catharsis moment. You know, the brother as an anti-hero kind of led astray that needs to come together with a family member and kind of deal with this in a way that ends productively and ends in them working together to do the the family thing. If Lie is going to be Iron Fist, then maybe Fang is going to be the new Swordmaster. I could definitely see it going a bunch of positive ways. That said, I could see it going a lot of negative ways. Alyssa Wong has written some horrible characters that are really cool and really hot, but are just evil and are going to stay that way. And this could be one of those. It ties these two distinct mythoses, the Swordmaster mythos and the Iron Fist mythos, together in new ways, in ways that I don't think any other writer would have thought to do this. And certainly nothing like this ever would have come up with Danny Rand. So it's just fun and exciting. I love the dandiness of him and the haircut. He's a great character. He's one that I would want to see come back and be, you know, a villain or an anti-hero or a challenge in places that don't have anything to do with Iron Fist or Swordmaster. I agree with that. I love him so much, just the vibe. Usually I eye roll when it comes to like these kind of tropes, like, oh, it's the evil sibling, you know what I mean? But like I've been enjoying this <laughs> this run so far far so much that like you know what didn't even blink at it and I'm really hoping that like he does come around I do see him like eventually coming to terms with like his relationship with Iron Fist. I love so much of what you guys are putting out there because I never would have come up with oh one of them can be the Swordmaster and one of them can be the Iron Fist what? That's great I love that. After our interview with Alyssa I know this is the kind of storytelling she really enjoys telling she loves a good messy family because I think there's such a wealth of beautiful and interesting storytelling you can do with family. How many of us have been there when our brother also released this evil demon that our family was sworn to protect against and destroy and make sure they were dormant? I mean, for the rest of I had a nickel every time my sister did that, and she's seven. <laughs> From reading this, I can tell and feel this is going to a place where not only Alyssa feels comfortable writing, but in storytelling where I feel like this will be part of her strongest. So I have a lot of faith in her to deliver such a great story. I am very very fascinating to see where a lot of these different, you know, threads are going to go and tie in. There is a lot of emphasis on, you know, not only family, but a lot of identity and a lot of, you know, challenges against what you initially thought you were or who you were and how do you reconfigure and how do you recontextualize who you are in terms of the story you're now being based in. I'm also kind of looking forward to uh, our family has been wrong this entire time. We've been actually secretly the evil one, something along those lines. Mm. So that, that might be hard to do. It's in terms of 
mythologies that I'm familiar with. I'm not 100% confident and familiar with a lot of Chinese folklore and Chinese mythology. So seeing that be touched upon here a lot, there's a lot of, I think, storytelling there that I don't know and I'm not familiar with. And I'm really excited to get to see incorporated into this character that I think can really help. I'm always down for inclusions in mythology. There was a mention the name Nuwa. And I was like, oh, I do know that goddess. That's the goddess of creation in Chinese mythology. She literally created humanity. And I was like, oh, I wonder how that's going to play into things because you can't just throw out a name and anything because it's going to be overanalyzed. So I am very excited for that aspect as well. Poor Mei Min. Oh my goodness. Her dad has been replaced by a demon and he's not here to play with you. This is certainly a relief because in the earlier pages of Iron Fist, I'd been like, ugh, is she, you know, manipulated this whole time, her whole life? You know, I really regret when the fiction choice is have an entire character's life invalidated down to catching this other person. It's one thing if it was like, it's, you know, Linlay's destiny and they're doing it to him but if it's Linlay's destiny and they're doing it to Mei Min that just feels certainly like making a woman a passenger in her own story and seeing that it's that it's been you know for months not like your whole life you were bred for this it's such a relief because I do think that there's a lot of value in these characters and I am excited to see especially after you know we see him really become the Iron Fist you know even if he is doing it with his family's sword his family birthright and duty you know pushed into his arms it's still about this other thing and I just thought that was a really great way to move through what could have really been an eye roll sequence I think it gave us a peek into how we might see the Iron Fist world turned into something that's larger than just the character of Iron Fist we've had a bunch of stories featuring Kun Lun and featuring you know things like the immortal weapons we know that this is an expansive world but we've never gotten like a team book or even a solo Iron Fist book with a cast of characters like this backing up Iron Fist and I think this could be a really interesting development from this that we get all these characters that we've gone on a journey with and that we expect to see as part of if Lee becomes the Iron Fist permanently if this is a long term change I think we would expect to see more of these characters and so getting them plot development early and giving them moments that make them invested in and important for this story, I think is a really smart investment. Again, in just rolling through the idea that Danny Rand is Iron Fist and that's who we should be going back to. Let's. This is a new generation. It's new characters. And I'm excited to see them have their own parties. Especially because some of the things that we're getting are really blowing my mind. I just love the ways in which this story plays with the elements of functional storytelling like a scabbard for a missing sword. Oh my God, there's a magic scabbard. I love these things and that the magic scabbard matters. Ugh, that's so cute. It's like something that plays into childlike wonderment, which I think should play into a story like this. It's such a bigger than life, uh, very playful departure from what I feel like we've spent so many years doing with Iron Fist, the, the dark of the noir New York City, the, you know, midtown dope, 
dojo contrasted with the beauty of the magical cities. No, this is just like bright, luscious, magical city after bright, luscious, magical city. And even when we're not in a super luscious, magical location, the colors are so vibrant. They're not muted. They are eager to engage the reader in a visual a visual dynamism. And that's something that I really feel like is setting this run on Iron Fist apart. Certainly, the muted color tone of previous runs fit an era and a trope. And I, you know, tropes make the world go round. No one's coming for tropes. I'm excited to see this brighter than I'd believe a Marvel comic wants to be. And the ways in which that departure elevates this story, kind of story, in this modern age. I think that this could be a very, if the color wasn't so bright, I think it could be a very different book because I think you really can sink into the pain and the confusion and the guilt and and these things that are warring within Linley and and then the horror the body horror of it all and I think that by keeping the colors bright and keeping the world so lush and visual and stunning like we're able to kind of say that you know this is a story where there may be dark spots within it but there is so much more than than the inner turmoil happening that we can look towards and move into into this beautiful big world that you don't need to to make everything so tight and cold and gritty and gray just because that's what the the main character is dealing with under the surface now one of the things that this book also plays with so well is the elements that make iron fist a sort of tradition there's things that really are intrinsic to this main character i don't know if it's the second that dragon touches your chest you have to become kind of like sanctimonious about your family and you have to immediately have a whole lot of family drama and you need to become convinced that if you just do it by yourself it'll be fine but god it works for me because one of the things that's great is you know lynn is completely different in every way from danny even if they are very similar in who they behave as so seeing the return of the immortal weapons my precious fat cobra and bride of nine spiders this can only mean good things for a character who's so rich with detail that he fits so well in with the iron fist cannon Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. Now, Clea has been filling in for Doctor Strange for the last couple of months, and it's been really exciting to hear that not only has the title transformed, but the team's understanding of Clea as a hero has as well. Well, according to this coverage, she might not be exactly a hero, but she is certainly Sorceress Supreme, and she's here to take care of the Earth as well as whatever else the Marvel Universe throws her way. We hope you guys enjoy this next segment, and don't forget, if you guys like what you hear, we make this show for you three times a week mc2 mondays modern marvel wednesdays and xi4p premiere fridays you guys can find the show on twitter and instagram at x's for podcasts and you guys can find me nico at nico action that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n on social media don't forget you can check out the show's new website at x's for podcast.com and until next time enjoy this last segment keep those mutant lights lit those krakoan gateways open remember do not keep your family's legacy swords embedded in your arms and we'll see you
way more, which is what I have been waiting for. So it, it gives me a lot of hope that like moving forward, it's going to fall into its into its pace even better. Oh, yeah, it definitely feels like things are starting to escalate and I'm excited for it. Hey, no, I totally get that. It's like the first two issues I was like, oh, wait, what's going on? This isn't like what I'm used to from Jen McKay, but it looks like Jed was just setting up a whole bunch of stuff and finally it all clicked and it feels like a Jed McKay story that I expect and the Jed McKay stories that I'm always gonna love so like I am totally down for this shift I cannot wait to see where this is going to go either because it is finally making sense what do we feel about Clea's shift from just the Sorcerer Supreme to now we're seeing her actually shift into her warlord of manhattan persona i am digging the hell out of the characterization that we got from her this issue and like i just gotta know what y'all are feeling about clea strange warlord of manhattan it uh, it's so much better so 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 much better in this issue than than the last issue last issue we already know that i <laughs> i had some issues with it but this issue i think it was represented way clearer and and far more in line with what I was imagining it would be like, so I'm quite happy. I'm really liking the Warlord of Manhattan deal with her. I like her scaring the hell out of people. The scene where the Rose is like, what do you want, Clea Strange, after he realizes that all his men are snakes? He looks genuinely like disturbed and worried and not in control of the situation. <laughs> right. While the art is not flashy in the series in the way that I maybe expect from like Doctor Strange type stories, it goes a long way towards uh, really emphasizing exactly why Clea has the costume that she has here because there's a bunch of images of her in silhouette in this issue that clearly make her look like like a cartoon devil you know with big old horns oh my god right and like there's a scene where she's almost entirely in black but with like a glare from behind her at night where she looks like a straight up like vampire devil lady and I like the leaning into the frightening aspect of the monster lady that she is and I like that some of this issue has like an almost Dave Cockrum-ish -ish effect of shadow on people's faces that really worked for me I'm scared of her, and I'm awed by her, and I'm loving it. <laughs> I, I really enjoy seeing this brutal take on the Sorcerer Supreme, and it's kind of refreshing. It's normally not something that I care for, but I like this. Yeah, she has a lot more more power, more agency, more more personality that honestly I don't think we had seen before because we had only seen her through the lens of what she really means to Doctor Stephen Strange, and now we're finding out who Clea is. Oh no, agree. I know I've had my problems with her outfit before, but the way it is presented in her uh, faultine form, like with you know with full fire hair, it it clicks now so I kind of like I'm like oh maybe that is what they always wanted for it to have that simple Doctor Strange like outfit but to mainly do it in her fire form yeah but she is definitely scarousing as hell like I am both scared and aroused by her <laughs> I was about to ask 
She is scary, terrifying, and sexy as hell in this issue. I feel this issue, it worked better with the art and the colors. Like, I think my issue with number two especially was just all of the, the drab raininess of it all. And it just didn't help anything stand out or pop. I think the darker tone of this issue and the use of the shadows and everything else did work better for me. Like, you know, I still have some of my same issues with with faces and noses like I'm looking at a page right here where her nose is two different noses in the same page right next to mm -hmm. each other but I think it gelled better in this issue than it did before yeah I would agree I, there's much more consistent of a character design across it I still think having two anchors who I'm not sure are always working on the same page is a little jarring sometimes I don't know exactly what this breakdown there is but it does feel like there's some remaining inconsistency there but I mean in general characters are on model. Clea is constantly shifting forms. It's becoming clear that that's more a part of her character, and I've come to appreciate the many different styles that she's presented with. Although it is nice to, to be able to say, like, this is the same woman throughout, and it's definitely, I think, a little clear sometimes when the inking shifts that it's like, this is a different style. I thought the lettering was a standout on this one. Although it's pretty restrained, there's some really good stuff that, like, really brought my attention in, because, like, really good letters can always just, like, really emphasize how fun and comic booky it is. The, the shooting scene filled with brackas and uh, Clea's like, white outlined uh, writing was really nice. And that one dripping, my mother's coming to dinner, but in like chiller font was <laughs> chiller font, but like the word balloon had the icicle. <laughs> that was fun. That, oh, that was Levin. so fun. That one was my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I like this style of art better compared to like the last couple of issues. The last couple of issues, the artwork kind of seemed very 90s, like late 90s. This artwork feels more like 2000s-ish, 2010-ish. So I'm still not the hugest fan of it. I felt there was some wasted panels or some wasted pages. And I'm not always a fan of some of the shade work, but it clicks a lot better. I think it felt a lot better. It's starting to click into place with the story which I think oh the, the story has me absolutely enraptured I'm here for it I just I want that art to go that just couple extra inches to really click into place because I can feel how epic a story we are in for there's a two-page spread in here which mm -hmm. could easily just be a one-page spread and in fact my eyes like when looking at it assumed it was a one-page spread because mm -hmm. the right hand page is almost entirely black and filled with literally nameless soldiers in the parts that you can see. Oh, yes. I was looking at this page right here, the, the Blasphemy Cartel. The, yeah. Where yeah. They, yeah. It feels like a, a squandering of a two-page spread. Yeah, all of the needed information, all of the main action and the coolness is over on the left-hand side. My first thought was, did something accidentally happen to this page during editing or printing? Was there supposed to be more information and it just didn't get there? Maybe, maybe we're missing like exposition or something. And then I realized, oh no, this is just how it's supposed to be printed. And I'm like, we have a paper shortage and you don't have a lot of pages to tell your story in. So you got to make every last one count to actually like tell your, your bosses, like why you deserve to be here. Like yeah. you got to leave it on the floor every time. Having all of the tips of the guns of the soldiers who are on the right hand page in the left hand mm -hmm. page means that mm -hmm. if you, and I did this, if you fold over that page, it looks identical in terms of like storytelling information and mm -hmm. in terms of like things you want to look at and excess can be good in comics, but this is one of those times where it's just like, why wasn't this page put to more use? 
used for you know storytelling real estate and mm-hmm. uh, i definitely thought it was an ad and was about to turn the page the first time i looked at it mm-hmm. so i read in digital and I'll be honest, it didn't even register to me that it was a two-page spread. I mean, normally I can pick them out because the page ratio changes, but it was just like, oh, this is this just feels like a single page to me. Mm. So when I when I heard you you all talking about it, I'm like, which page was? Th- oh, this was a two-page spread. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> couple pages over where we see Clea go full faultine when you know they fired all those bullets at her that honestly felt like it should have been a half page spread versus a full page with like the soldiers reactions of fear like right down below it that would have been perfect because on the next page you have everybody's reaction and I'm like it feels like honestly you could have crunched that into a half page and then the other half page used for the reactions and then had like a full page where you could do exposition or or fill in more action i love the art on that page mm-hmm. with the with the bullets all flying towards her yes and you know just like the look on her face but okay yeah i see what you're yeah. saying the soldiers down below didn't even need to be featured you could have just shown the reaction because we've seen yeah. all the soldiers are facing her we've seen that the bullets are flying at her so we just need to see her catching them and then that maybe third of a strip half a strip whatever that down below could have been the reactions on their face and that would have just been perfect priceless boom there's your instance there's your moment it is my favorite page in the entire comic it is a beautiful full page splash but it's also mm-hmm. like again this like there's kind of like a strange thing going on with the layout here where stuff seems to be a little bit out of place and especially given that the next page after the reaction is given over to two like giant drawings of Clea's face that don't really get much across those are the panels that I could have really really done with them being smaller her faulting form really stands out for like a huge page that's just to focus in on her face the form by default is so featureless it doesn't really do anything cool with with the use of almost like three-fourths of the page or two-thirds yeah. of the page yeah. where's her hair that would have been a perfect chance to shrink this down to like a bust sized panel and have her hair just you know whipping and 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 you know curling around her like flame that would have been so wonderfully intimidating but yeah it got cropped to just such narrow perspectives of her face that i think you lose a lot of the impact like you were saying i remember how you said raven it's some of it's very like 2010s ish art wise yeah. you know the blasphemy cartel looks very bellaccio <laughs> like mm-hmm. some of the pages i'm like oh okay they're trying to do bellaccio right here i understand harkening back to older styles because honestly that's kind of the era that we're in is we're pulling from the past and tying up some some loose ends and getting stories to be more cohesive and whatnot but you also have to recognize that art styles have come so far that if you're not specifically trying to make a comic book era stand out again and go hey we're doing a revamp of noir type comics or we're doing a revamp of you know slice of life watercolor type comics like you got you have to have a good solid firm style and you have to keep that style fresh so it's okay to harken back but don't don't go all the way back and then try and bring us forward and then take us back again because it it unfortunately ends up kind of breaking your attention from the wonderful story that's going on 
I do have to say, on lettering, though, I love the effects of when all of the guns are shot <laughs> shooting. Yes. Just, like, that blank, uh, that blank art page, and, like, you know, like, you got the figures up front, and then the blank background, and the... It's such a simple thing, and it's something that you see all the time, but the combination of the way it was lettered, and the way that, like, when they zoom up on the muzzles of the guns, you also get, like, this huge zoom in on the brackas, as if they're, like, yes. physically floating in the air, and you're closer to them, was, like, honestly delightful. That was super good oh, yes i can't believe a panel uh, just several panels of people just firing guns pointlessly at nothing was like some of my favorite stuff in this but it just it's very well executed there yeah i will absolutely have to give it to the letterer there are some really great sound effects in this comic and it you can feel like the the foosh where where clea just unleashes uh umar's stone prison i'm like that was freaking awesome that was that was beautiful lettering it really just solidified you know the whole instance i cannot wait for umar to come to dinner in the next (laughs) oh you've been calling on my name a lot but you can't call me why can't you call your mother Hmm? (laughs) i want to use my stone prisons but you don't want to even come over for dinner so i love that her parlay (laughs) the audience has demanded one day hint refreshments will be served and a list of dietary requirements will follow it was like this is i love this cannot tolerate lactose. How do we think Khazar and the Savage Lander dealing with the new warlord of Antarctica, by the way? <laughs> oh, I, I want to that. see that. I really want to see that. I, oh, oh, I want to see that so bad. The last Khazar series was so good. Oh, it was it so was, good. Oh, it's like one of the best books out there. That was a gift. It's Ned Thompson and Jed McKay teamed up for a Khazar oh. Umar miniseries. Mm-hmm. I think yes, I would die of joy. Oh my god, yes. Just uh, take my money. We've got Umar coming and I'm so excited for that. But how do we feel about the Blasphemy Cartel as a, seems like they're going to be the overarching villain, at least of this first part of Strange? Like, do we think they're compelling? Do we feel that they have proven themselves to be a little bit more of a threat now? They have a design and a concept that makes me not want to care about them, which is that they are a gang that wears entirely black with their faces covered and are nothing but numbers. Like, they're... Just numbered henchmen, you know, it's the kind of thing that, like, is very difficult for me to care about until we get to the end of this one where, like, just just the fact that they're in this place with their computers and stuff, but they also seem to have, like, a treasure chest and a scrying ball and some, like, feather quills in an ink pot and some candles burning. Like, these are occult gangsters. I mean, the name should have given that away to begin with. But, like, now I'm fully invested in what's going on here. And now the nobody makes sense when we see that they're led by a guy named Director Nunn, who I at first thought was, like, the negative man or something. I was trying to figure out if this was a guy I knew, but doesn't seem like it. He's just like a null white space. And that's very striking and interesting. I'm like actually pretty invested in these weird occult gangsters at their castle with their nobody guy now. Director Nunn, he seems kind of interesting. I'd like to know more about what's going on with him. But I mean, anonymous henchmen's are just kind of meh to me, especially if they all just have numbers. And it's just like, okay, you're, you're just people that we can throw at whatever and it doesn't matter if you if you lose so i'm hoping that we get a little more exposition on who they are what their motivation is i like the whole 
combination of technology and magic, the way they operate. So I'd, I'd like to see more of that. I love that both Clea and Wong are completely baffled by computers. Like, <laughs> computers just like, computers? I don't know what to do with these. And Wong's like, what could they want with computers? God. Okay, so I have to give them a gentle drag slash read. It's giving me... Putties without Rita Repulsa realness. It's giving me <laughs> foot mm-hmm. soldiers, but without Shredder. Mm-hmm. It's giving me faceless henches have been done for decades now. And come on, can we not find something a little bit better? Or at least something a bit more flashy. Like these exceedingly uh, plain tactical suits that we've seen like a billion times. Especially when they're like not just military. They are blasphemy cartel. Give me some bling. Give me some glitz. Let me see some, some, some twisted symbols that look marred or messed up. Like give me some oomph. I don't know who they are. All I know is they seem to be completely inept at first and only become slightly less stormtrooper realness with our aim. I need them to be a bit more aggressive and competent. But there's nothing blasphemous about their outfit. Give me guys with under titty. Give me some leg and thigh. Give me something. <laughs> True. It would be nice to have a little man candy in the series. You know, Wong, besides the point. Having nameless henchmen sort of thing for a magic gang makes a little sense because a lot of spells in Marvel have been specific towards the victim. So if you can't necessarily mm-hmm. single out your victim, then, you know, you're going to have a harder time making a spell stick on them. And like that, the main thing that sticks out in my mind is when during uh, X-Men Black Sun when Amanda Sefton had to pretend to be magic because she says, you know, like a name, like don't say my real name out loud because a name has power. So like, mm-hmm. I think if you make them a little bit more, you know, generic, it's sort of making it harder to target them with spells. You know, they have something that's able to stop magic for, you know, a certain amount of minutes, but then it also only affects earth magic and they didn't know enough about Clea to know that she's not just of earth, earth magic. Either. Yeah, It's giving me Boogle lose with a little bit of police tech that they think is going to work against military tech and they lose realness. I like pointing out that they are nobodies so that they have no names that can be used against them. That is really interesting. I wonder if that'll come up. And that the whole like nobody and none and void and null thing here. Like, I can't help thinking this has to tie in somehow with why Wong doesn't remember these people. I was going to ask if anybody knows exactly what that's a reference to, because I can't really, for the life of me, think of it. It's been wiped from all of our memories. And if they aren't, like, fully versed in all forms of magic, it does make sense that they are taking these, what seem like less than educated (laughs) guesses at how to negate magic. Okay, you helped change my opinion a little bit. I think they've got some of the basics down, right? There may be intermediate magic users or magic disruptors or whatever. You know, they're intermediate magical cult, but you know, they took on the wrong person. <laughs> Talking about the blasphemy cartel, Steve, you mentioned Director Nun. We visually love his look. I would personally love to see Director Nun show up in Moon Knight and have Rochelle Rosenberg color. Yeah. 
I love how he is all queer white almost, and he talks in black voice bubbles. It's very much like Mr. Negative, which is why I kept going to that. It's the same sort of gimmick, right? This inversion. Oh, yeah. I would love to see what Capuccio and Rosenberg could do with this design. Oh my god, yes. Absolutely. And honestly, I found him rather compelling. Like, I wanted to know more once he showed up on page. I'm like, oh, oh, thank god. We've, 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 we've got a person in charge. It's not just Keystone Cops bumbling through <laughs> a heist kind of thing. You know who Director Nunn kind of reminds me of? Because he's got a big zero on his head? Zero from the MLF. Yeah, big zero vibes, right? He's got that featureless bodysuit with just the face design. I'm digging it. I'm here for the ride. I personally think this is my favorite part of the series so far, but how do we feel about the growing rapport and easy relationship between Clea and Walk? I'm finding it fun. I like that they kind of just hang out and paint their nails together. I like the domesticity of them like cooking and I wish we could get like an issue and maybe further on because I, I believe this is ongoing, but it would be nice to get an issue of them just like hanging out and watching a scary movie together. Maybe some John Carpenter. I'm actually really enjoying this friendship that they're building between Wong and Clea because it, it shows Clea is not constantly high manic pixie energy and she's not constant you know faulty and warlord she like she has her moments and it's kind of great to see Wong not just catering to Dr. Stephen Strange he seems much more like taking care of the house taking care of his own stuff like it feels like a, a, a friendship partnership rather than a, a servant and owner of the house kind of relationship, which kind of happened with Stephen Strange. Yeah, I agree. I find their relationship fun. It's nice to have these moments after things have been so heated when Clea activates her Faltine side for her to just kind of wind down and wear some casual clothes and cook dinner with Wong and have a glass of wine. It's just a nice, refreshing segment after something that was so high-tense. Agree. I love that it's kind of letting them cool down. And I love how Clea is basically using telekinetic spells, Clea or Wong, to pour a glass of wine in that page right there. Right. I'm like, she is, she is like, it is wine o'clock somewhere, okay? <laughs> she is also pretending to chop the vegetables with her hands. The moment she takes her hand off the knife, it keeps chopping. Yes. Right. Like this episode of D Space Nine, I just watched Big Fontaine. Is like, oh no, here, play this piano. He's like, I don't know how to play this piano, and then like the piano starts playing, and Oda's like, oh look, I look like I'm playing. I love how much attention to small detail is done in these like everyday kind of panels, and I really want to see that small attention to detail done in like the bigger fight panels or the more aggressive panels, because. Oh, I love these these everyday panels. There's just so much going on and it tells a story without me even needing to read, but when I'm reading, I'm getting even more information. So like it's beautifully rich and that's what I want to see throughout. Do we feel that Clea's transformation into the warlord of Manhattan and her darker turn for a sorcerer supreme of Earth is going to help her or hinder her in her quest to bring back Stephen Strange? I don't know if it will 
help or hinder her, but I think it may change her perspective over time. Yeah, she may continue to try and pursue resurrecting Doctor Strange, but maybe over time it's going to change. She's going to find that, okay, I need to do this for the Dark Dimension. I need to do this for Earth. Bringing Steven back is not an actual good option. So we got to figure out if I need to make this work or if I need to find a better replacement. I think the attitude is kind of besides it, but it is driving the plot towards an area where I think she will be able to resurrect him because Director Nunn mentions in the last panel that Shadow Knight is going to show up and he's apparently part of something called the Lazarus Agents. I don't know if this is a reference to Project Lazarus or other previous Marvel things, but just the very name Lazarus and with his connections, obviously, to raising the dead and resurrecting the dead. I think that she's on the right track following the Blasphemy Cartel and may find a way to bring Steven back through methods that she might find from them. Didn't even think of that. That's a very good point. The only other thing like I wanted to mention was how the idea of computers, when they were like, wait, what does the Blasphemy Cartel want with computers? It looks to me like they're trying to create a magical repository of magical information, which is a story that we've seen happen before. But like anytime you try to throw all that magical information together it takes on a life of its own and that like gives me some scary possibilities for what could happen with this book going forward this issue three to me best issue so far solid i think it reignited my interest in this series and that it's going to be something that i'm gonna look forward to seeing where it goes moon knight crossover moon knight crossover (laughs) really excited to finally see shadow knight just not appeared in the series so far excited to see what the hell's going on with him looking forward Mm -hmm. to him yes absolutely i really do hope that that crosses over with boon knight because like (sighs) jeb mckay is so good can i just gush really quick about the colors that were used during the broadway landline escape panel yes they were so pretty oh my god and the the perspective where you could actually see the entry point of the landline as they were traveling through it that I really like that panel a lot. Using a ley line in New York City is always going to be a cool thing. It's a thing I love when it shows up in any comic is like the idea of ley lines crossing America and using them here too, as well as in the UK. And it, it does look really beautiful. I feel like the colors have been really restrained a lot, except for when something needs to glow. So it was nice to see them go a little while on that. Also, I love the little pentacle gear shift. <laughs> We're shifting to magic drive. I love it. Again, you got to see these fun, small details. That's what I was looking for. And that's, I think, the first time I thought, oh, these guys are actually way more competent than I was led to believe. Because, holy crap, they used basically magic or a magical principle to do something. And they got from one point to another very, very quickly, taking Clea into the trap that they already had set. I'm like, oh. Oh, oh, so yeah, like I want to see that. Like I, I want a confident, I want a confident, competent villain. Because I think it, oh, it could, it could be so interesting and so freaking amazing. Speaking of really minor like details, I really liked the reference again to the Mystic Forge of Doctor Strange, the Sanctum Machina. Uh, it's one of my favorite additions to the Doctor Strange mythos of recent years, and I'm really glad that Jed remembers that it's there and is pulling that back in as a as a plot device. The fact that Doctor Strange has you know a mystical forge out in Nita Valir is <laughs> endlessly cool. <laughs> <to me. laughs> 